Hi friends, Gerald Law here. Welcome to the Love Lake Norman podcast. Love Lake Norman is a church in Cornelius, North Carolina, whose mission is to help people find and follow Jesus. You're about to hear a message that will be helpful and hopeful. Our goal is to encourage you to take the next step in your faith. Wherever you are, we want you to know that God has a plan and a purpose for you. Thanks for spending time with us today. We hope you enjoy this message. Hello, guys. We are in week five, the final week of our series, Better Decisions and Fewer Regrets. Thanks to Andy Stanley for his work in this area. Today's question is the relationship question. And the big idea of this series is that there's a relationship between good questions and good decisions. And I'm convinced that if you've been following along, if you will do these things, if I'll do these things, if we'll ask the question, if we'll answer honestly, and then we'll act on it, you will make better decisions and live with fewer regrets, which would be amazing for all of us. And the truth is this, we aren't the only people impacted by our decisions and our regrets. Other people are as well. So let's review the questions that we've asked so far. Question number one is the integrity question. And it's, am I being honest with myself Really, because the most difficult person to lead is the person in the mirror. Whenever you're, you're making a decision, ask yourself, am I being honest with myself, really? Question number two was the legacy question. What story do I wanna tell? What story do I wanna tell? When the decision that you're making right now is a story that you tell, what story do you want to tell? Make it one that you're proud of. Be the person who exercised self-control, not the person who loses control. You get to decide your story one decision at a time. So write a great story. Now, question number three was the conscience question. And that was, is there a tension that deserves my attention? C- considering something, if you're, if you're in the middle of thinking through something right now, and maybe everybody agrees on what you should do, but there's something about it that doesn't seem right. When that happens, pause, pay attention to that tension. Now, question four uh, that we asked last week was the maturity question, and it is what is the wise thing to do? In light of my past experience, in light of my current situations, in light of my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing to do? And, and, And it's not what's legal or acceptable or permissible, but is it wise? Your decision can be not wrong and not wise at the same time. And and when you make an unwise decision, those are often the gateway decisions that lead to regret. And before your greatest regret, regret, you probably made a series of unwise decisions, decisions that maybe weren't even wrong or illegal, but they weren't wise. And so we come to the last question in this series, question number five, the relationship question. Now, most of these questions that we have asked are, are, are terrifying because they're clarifying. You usually know the answer to the question before you even ask it. Because once you know, you you can't unknow it. And so once you know, you feel accountable to yourself, which is a good thing, but it's also kind of scary. It's kind of terrifying. When I was in college, I got connected to a, a campus ministry and my faith really began to come alive then. I began to actually meet with one of the staff workers of this ministry and and he would ask tough challenging questions to me like challenging me to make my life line up with my faith and initially I would just say they were kind of scary because I wasn't sure I totally wanted to make my life line up with my faith the fifth and final question is the most clarifying of all of these and in some ways it's the scariest it's the most terrifying clarity is often what we need though to push us past our 
resistance. There will be resistance to, to this question. There's gonna be resistance to this one. This one may be the one you're most tempted to not answer honestly. It's gonna require, I'll just say this, it's gonna require the most from you. And I'll, I'll give you this permission too. You don't even have to act on it today, but I want you to at least ask it because, because what you don't know can hurt you. And what you refuse to know or, or admit will hurt people close to you as well. When you envision your, your future, for instance, you, you never envision yourself alone. Well, this question is gonna help keep that other person beside you. If that person isn't there yet, getting into the habit of asking and answering this question is gonna help you become the person that you're looking for is looking for. It's gonna help you um, know these things. Do you, you, you know who you're looking for? You're looking for someone amazing and so are they. And asking and answering this relationship question is gonna increase your level of amazing in your life. Also, this question has the potential to enhance the quality of every relationship that you're in. Every single one. It has the power to uh, rekindle romance. It has the power to restore what was lost. But let me give uh, another disclaimer to this question too. Unlike the other four questions, this one does not have a guaranteed return on investment. You're always gonna come out ahead for being honest with yourself, really. You're always gonna come out ahead for that. You're always gonna come out ahead for writing a good story, for paying attention to the tension, for doing the, the wise thing in your life. Um, those things will always come out in, in your favor. It's gonna have a good return. But the fifth question is a little different. There might not be this tangible, noticeable return on your effort at asking this question. This question is, is demanding in a different kind of way than the, than the first four. It's just more difficult. This is about making other people's lives better. It, it may make you better, but it might not. But it positions you to make the world better. In Jesus' ministry, he, he was always talking about something that was coming, something that was new on the horizon, something that was gonna really replace what was then first century Judaism, and people thought it was gonna be political revolution or at least political reform that he was bringing, but he had something bigger in mind, something that uh, it was way more inclusive in mind, and, and these questions were always on the minds of his followers. What was coming? What was getting ready to happen? And so, you remember when he entered Jerusalem? Remember that those crowds that lined up the street to welcome him? Those, in those last days of his life, they knew that something big was going on and their expectations were political. He was gonna become king, they thought, and they were there for it. They were ready for that. They didn't understand his intention. Even his 12 disciples, even those closest to him, they didn't get it. They were busy positioning themselves for power in this new kingdom that was coming that they thought that was gonna be this new kingdom of Israel. And finally, Jesus gathers them together for the Passover meal and he announces his, his real plan. First, he says, he's leaving. And that was a problem because Jesus was their safety net, right? Whenever Jesus went out, wherever he went, crowds would gather around him. And, and because crowds gathered around him, Jesus kept the enemies, their, their enemies from getting close. If Jesus were gonna leave, the apostles were getting ready to go missing as well and not in a good way. And why would he leave now? Like they were on the verge of a revolution, but he told them he's leaving. And on their final night together, he spells it out. He, and he says these words, 
And, and here's the thing, these words are so familiar to us that it, it's almost like they make very little or no impact anymore. Like we don't doubt that this is what he said, but the words don't hit us between the eyes like they need to. They don't send us back into our, our house or our workplace or our neighborhood with an apology in our hands. They don't make us change our words or our responses or our, our attitudes like they, like they should. You might respond when you hear these with, oh yeah, 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 I've heard that before, right? Which is totally unfortunate because these words were said to these men who would go on to turn the whole world upside down. These words would explain the event that we hold on to when we fall short, when we sin. Like when you wonder where you stand with God, what do you lean into? You, we lean into Jesus' death on the cross. He died for me so that I can have a right standing with God, but his death on, on the afternoon after he spoke these words, it was this real life illustration of what he told them that night. This is like the centerpiece of the Christian faith because here's what the kingdom of God looks like on earth. This is what he was saying and the apostle Paul was, was totally rocked by these words and when he wrote the letter to the Roman Christians, he said the only thing that matters really is these words. When he wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians, he said if we don't get this right, it doesn't matter what else we get right. Now we sometimes ask in the church for deeper and, and Paul would respond to that, you want deeper. You, you want deeper because you've never witnessed a guy being flogged to the point where he wants to die, but he can't because the soldier is inflicting pain and, and the soldier knows right when to stop, not out of mercy, but because he wanted to prolong it. Death would be merciful. Out of a desire to cause so much pain, more suffering, as much suffering as possible. We, we think there has to be more and we've got to go deeper because we've never witnessed a crucifixion. We've never seen somebody choose to lay down their life for their enemy. There's nothing more deep. There's nothing more profound and there's nothing with more potential to change everything than Jesus' instructions to his followers the night of his arrest. These words I'm gonna share, they represent a huge shift. They would turn the world completely upside down and what began as this harmless little threat to the empire eventually would, would take over the empire. His words during the last Passover meal, they serve as the, the, like the match that was struck to light the fire that leads us to this fifth question. So, so I wanna encourage you to hear this as, as, as if you're hearing it for the very first time, like listen to this like you're listening for the first time. Let it compel you to forgive. Let it compel you to, to tame your tongue, to open up your wallet, to reshuffle your values. He said, a new command I give to you. A new command I give to you. And, and at the moment, they're probably thinking a command, like we've got plenty of commands, Jesus. We already have plenty of commands. You've given us some, we have some. Earlier, he had reduced it to two, right? To love God and love your neighbor. Like, why is he bringing up a third? And why new commands? Like, like Jesus, we need a plan right now. We don't need a command. And by the way, only God had the authority to add commands to this. But as it turns out, Jesus wasn't adding one. He was replacing the existing commandments, all of them. 
This is radical. This is one reason this doesn't have as much impact on us as maybe it should, because a lot of us were raised to believe that this was just another command that he added to the 10 uh, commandments, or another command that he added to like the, the 600 plus commandments that are in the Old Testament. That's not it. He was replacing what was already in place. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. Doesn't sound new, does it? But, but Jesus was not through. He wasn't commanding us to, to feel something, like the feeling of love. He was commanding us to do something. And then what came next was just kind of unthinkable, but what came next changed the world. It trumped the golden rule, it trumped the love God and love your neighbor. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Right here, Jesus establishes himself as the standard of love, himself. The standard that we are to measure ourselves against. You've heard that uh, believing is all that matters. Sometimes we say that in the church, believing is all that matters. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you're gonna be a part of my kingdom, loving as I have loved is what matters the most. Doing for other people so that they will do something for you, like that's the old covenant at work. Jesus tells his followers, do to other people like I have done to you which was very personal for them, sitting around that table that night. We think of the cross when we read that, but for them, they, they didn't. The cross hadn't quite happened yet. They thought of the last three years they'd spent with Jesus. Like, like think of Matthew. He could have turned to Matthew and said, hey, Matthew, um, remember what you were up to when we met? And Matthew could have said, well, yeah, you know what? I was, I was working for Rome, you know, from home, like, like a, a government-sanctioned thief with bodyguards and a good place, uh, like good people kept their distance from me. And Jesus said, would, could have said, you know, remember what I said to you? And he would have said, yeah, you invited me to follow you. No one had ever done that for him. And Jesus would have said, yes, Give that same grace to every person that you meet. As I have loved you, that's how I want you to love. He could have worked his way around the table. Extend the same grace that I have extended to you. So how about you? How about me? Like, what were you up to when you first accepted the call to follow Jesus, if you have? Hey, think about that season of your life. Think about how much he loves you. He hears your prayers. He forgives. I, I, I have no excuse because of that not to extend a second and a third and a hundredth chance to everybody that I meet. That's what my Savior has given me. Like, like hey, if you think you've seen me love, then he said, you haven't seen anything yet. Tomorrow, I'm gonna give the world an act of love that is gonna take like your breath away and more importantly, it's gonna take your sin in a way. And it'll take your excuses away not to love as I have loved you. Tomorrow, I'm going to give my life away for you and for my enemies. So, so he continues, he says, if. And if we ever got this right, like it would change maybe everything. He says this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one 
another. And he says that word this, and that word this is a demonstrative pronoun, and it, and it points to something very specific. It's also singular, it's a, it's a, and it, so it points to something, one thing very specific, one specific thing he's pointing to, the thing that he wants uh, to identify his followers the most with, and it's the way that we love. This would serve to unify the church and define it more than anything. This is what all our behavior should be measured against. And it's totally unlike first century thinking. It's also totally unlike how we tend to think in the church today too. But it was the new litmus test for being a follower of Jesus. This wasn't religion anymore. It wasn't a ritual or all about a day of the week or a sacrifice that you made or a prayer that you said. It was so like, like all those things so we could get closer to a God who lived way out there somewhere. No, Jesus followers would demonstrate their devotion to God by putting the person next to them in front of them as he would get ready to do, as he was doing, as he would do the following afternoon. Like, you don't validate, he was saying, your relationship with God by looking up, but by looking around, by loving people around you. And Jesus didn't use his power or his equality with God to make them do something like, hey, you better do this because you know who I am, right? Like, you know what I could do to you. No, he didn't say any of those things. Paul says that Jesus didn't regard equality with God as something to be used for his own Benefit. He didn't regard that as something that he could do for him, like for his own benefit. Instead, do you know what he used? Sacrificial love. And why should the disciples do this? Because he loved them first. A new command I give you, he said, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And this was all-encompassing, an all-encompassing command. It was far less complicated and far more demanding. So there aren't any loopholes in this, are there? There are no workarounds. This is why we avoid it, by the way. This is why we avoid it, because uh, we, we want to take the new command and simply add it to the list, hoping that it will get lost in the mix somehow. All this brings us finally to the fifth question, the relationship question. And it is the question everyone should ask. It's the one that Jesus followers like, have to ask. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? That question should guide your conscience. It should inform how we date and parent and boss and manage and, and coach. It should put a boundary around what we say, what we do as a spouse, what you do as a coworker or a neighbor or a friend. That should fill the gap in the places where the Bible is silent. It tells us what God's will is in so many places. It exposes our hypocrisy and it is simple, but it's so demanding and it intersects with every imaginable relationship situation in your life. We're all tempted to ask, hey, how little can I get by with? What can I get by with? This question doesn't let us get away with that. Relationally speaking, simply ask, what does love require of you? And then do unto others what your heavenly Father has done for you. We're to love as we have been loved. And when we fall short, we're supposed to own it before anyone else even says anything. And listen, if that sounds like too much to ask, congratulations, like now you know exactly what Jesus is asking. If you say, I can't live up to that, 
Now you understand what he is calling you and me to do. You know what love requires most of the time. But listen, if, if love one another isn't specific enough, the, the New Testament is full of examples of how this plays itself out. The authors of the New Testament, they didn't add to this command, they just told us how to apply it over and over and over again. And Paul has some of the clearest applications, like in the book of Galatians. He, he says when it comes to relationships, God's always gonna nudge you forward through his Holy Spirit in the area of kindness, of goodness, of gentleness, of faithfulness, of self-control, that the Holy Spirit is gonna prompt you forward in these areas. And when you're in doubt of what to do, of what love requires, that's what you do. Paul's most detailed description was when he wrote to the church in Corinth, his description is, is like the standard of what love looks like. What does love require of us? He says it's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's never uh, disgraceful to others. We don't treat others dishonorably or indecently because Jesus never treated another person dishonorably or disgracefully or indecently. Like what if we just got that right? What if we just got that one thing right? It doesn't create regret. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't keep score. It forgets the bad and it elevates the good, it forgives, love forgives, it intentionally forgets, love always protects, love keeps harmful things out of a relationship, love doesn't seek to win arguments, love works to protect the relationship, love chooses to trust. It always hopes, it always perseveres, it always preserves, it always protects. That's what love requires of us. And let me say this before you decide this is too hard. Isn't this what you hope for in your own relationships? Like what you expect from people closest to you? Isn't it what you hope for people with you that you work with? That that's how they treat you? Like shouldn't that be required of us as well? So before you react to somebody, before you over respond to somebody, and remind them of their past and go straighten them out or you're getting ready to walk into his office or, or contemplate that invitation, ask this question, what does love require of me? I, I know what my past is, what the pattern is, what my pattern is, I know what they deserve, but what does love require of me? And if you're a Jesus follower, it's like asking this, what does my Lord require of me? And that might mean picking up your phone and apologizing. It might mean rebuilding a bridge that you burned down with your, your logical arguments. And you were right, but being right wasn't what love required. It might mean you write that letter or you rewrite that email or, and the other person might not be interested and, and that's okay. Chances are there was a time when you weren't interested in what God's love required of him, but he didn't quit pursuing you. And listen, there are things that I'll never understand, but, but my lack of understanding will never stop my capacity to put other people first. As complicated as so many things are in this world, there's so much I will never understand. As much as I don't know, I'll almost always know what love requires of me. If, if, if Jesus was, was right, that's enough. Like, like that's what it means to be his follower, like that's the center, like the kingdom of God on earth. What does love 
require of me? What does love require of you? Here's our five questions. Am I being honest with myself, really? What story do I wanna tell? Is there a tension that deserves my attention? What's the wise thing to do? And then what does love require of me? Good questions lead to better decisions and your decisions create a, a story of life, so write a good one. Your current regrets, they're only part of your story. They're only part of your story. They don't have to be your story. Your past reminds you, but it doesn't have to define you. Tell yourself the truth, even when the truth makes you not feel very good about yourself. There are worse things than that. Explore rather than ignore your conscience. Raise the standard of, of living from what's legal or okay to do to what's wise. And then do what love requires of you. That changed the world. And it might again. But even if it doesn't change the world, it will definitely change yours. Let's pray. God, may we ask that question in every relationship, every single day and night of our lives, what does love require of me. Your love for us required that you came and you went to the cross. You hung there solely because of your love for us. And for that, we are eternally grateful. We are forever in your debt. Help us to be people in a church who asks and then answers that question with bold love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening. You can find out more about Love Lake Norman at lovelkn.org. If you live in our area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday. If you're not near our church, we want to encourage you to find a life-giving church to be a part of where you live. That will be a key next step on your spiritual journey. Please take a minute, subscribe to this podcast, and keep up to date with our weekly messages. And thanks again for joining the Love Lake Norman podcast.